Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this latest in our series of classical conversations presented by the Seattle Chamber Music Society. My name is Dave Beck, and I'm a host and producer from KUOW 94.9 Public Radio in Seattle. These uh, sessions are recorded as a series of podcasts produced by the Society. We have a live audience assembled here on Wednesday, July 11th, 2012, as we originate from the Soundbridge Learning Center at Benaroya Hall in Seattle. This is the venue where we're now in our second week of summer festival concerts presented by the Society. Thanks to those of you who are here in person, and welcome to all of you who have found us and are listening on your various phones and computers and pods and pads and devices of all sorts. Our guest today is a veteran participant in Seattle Chamber Music Society concerts. Audiences here yeah. and around, <laughs> around the world know Jeremy Dank, the pianist from his concert recital and chamber music appearances. Uh, he's also an extraordinary musical thinker and communicator. And as someone who makes his living working for National Public Radio for an affiliate station, I was thrilled to listen in with other public radio uh, fans as Jeremy Dank uh, conversed with Terry Gross on Fresh Air. In, in recent weeks. And I think it's a real testament to Jeremy's sort of media-friendly nature that when, <laughs> when Terry referred to something in the ligatee as, as similar to the sound that garbage makes when it goes down the chute, you really rolled well with that. That's, a, that's an excellent image for that. <laughs> it was. It was. Um, Jeremy recently wrote in the pages of The New Yorker on his process of uh, recording the Charles Ives piano works, uh, many of those you've heard right here in Seattle and has this wonderful blog called Think Dank, and we hear musings on a visit to the Apple Store or what it was like as he had thoughts of mortality listening to Schubert in Carnegie Hall recently. It's a really uh, wonderful blog, which you may be a fan of. So let's, uh, let's welcome Jeremy Dank. Hello. <laughs> Jeremy begins his uh, recital tonight at 7 with the... Um, Brahms' variations on a theme of Paganini, Opus 35, and his music composed in 1862, 1863. Brahms would have been around 30 years old. How is, um, how is Brahms kind of on your mind? And, and the whole idea of, of etudes and studies, all this is kind of swirling around for you lately. Um, though there are several questions in there hiding, <laughs> I guess. Uh, Brahms has always kind of been swirling in my mind since I was a little kid, and probably, I mean... I sort of grew up when I was very young listening to Murray Pryor Mozart concertos, and that's sort of how I um, came to classical music, probably through those records. But the very next piece that I remember kind of obsessing about and loving more than any other piece in the world was the second Brahms piano concerto. Um, and probably partly because there are certain places in it where the pianist can go truly bananas in the way that I, that, uh, it's not totally typical of Brahms, this sort of unleashed virtuosity, uh, kind of demonic, um, you know, the, the that scherzo with a kind of um, constant sense of surging and searching, and then the then the sort of hovering or uh, soaring other themes, uh, and and probably also. that passage too very much when I was a kid. There was something about that that uh, really spoke to me. Yeah. Um, and, and Brahms, of course, you know, as you know, I, I sort of cut my teeth as a in my 20s and, and sort of maybe early 30s, very much more doing chamber music than anything else. Um, and uh, kind of obsessively, um, I, I worked, uh, we were just having a memory with Ed Aaron, who's also at the festival. I worked at this uh, institute at Ravinia called the Staines Institute. Um, Staines was the donor who, who gave all the bucks, but um, it was on the grounds of Ravinia. And I worked as, when I was 21 and 22, as the collaborative pianist for hire there, which meant all these students, really high-level students were coming in and playing, you know, they would have one or two lessons a week. And I would play for all, I would play like two lessons a day for six days in a row for five weeks um, and always different things. So every afternoon I was rehearsing. So I learned an immense amount of this repertoire. And, and of course, Brahms is, this Brahms sonatas are some of the most profound and important pieces in the piano and string 
repertoire. So it's, yeah, that's it, a long answer to your question. When, no. no, it's all, <laughs> all germane. Uh, it's interesting to me when with Brahms at this period, you know, we always get him painted as this kind of conservative. And, and uh, this piece of music was, was written with a, a student of Liszt in mind. I don't know how much you know, you've read about Carl Tausig, but it just, oh, yeah, well. it's, it's, it's interesting to me that, um, that he was kind of, uh, making a nod to the, to the list school here in, in these Paganini variations. Uh, well, I mean, right. We tend to kind of divide up the 19th century kind of stupidly in the, the Brahms and the Wagner yeah. camp. And then, but I think more profound for some of these people like, uh, Schumann and, and then his protege Brahms, and uh, was the division between the Philistines and the <laughs> and the real musicians. Mm -hmm. And you know, um, even Beethoven's complaining late in his life that no one plays him anymore in Vienna, and everyone's playing. This is a very funny remark, I think. <clears throat> as far as concertos, everybody plays the piece that they've whatever they've ground out, or he uses some sort of derogatory expression to, to denote these pieces that people were writing. All the pianists were writing these fantasies, probably on operatic themes or potpourris of famous themes with lots of arpeggios. And, and then, and if you think of those pieces and they're kind of, um, you know, just arcing, um, vamping, um, arpeggios and thirds and all kinds of tricks on top of a pre-existing pot boiler, um, then you think of what Schumann was doing, you know. You know, the, the kind of um, deliberate simplicity and anti-virtuosity of that. So there's an incredible... Um, sort of rift between the Liszt school. Uh, what's interesting is that Schumann and Clara Schumann were bowled over by Liszt when they first heard him. And then, of course, the related phenomenon is Paganini. And Liszt mm -hmm. and Rapagini were the two sort of rock stars, as they say. It's almost a cliche to say that now, of that time. Um, and Schubert, this famous story of him, you know, who he never, never had any money, right? And he spent some ridiculous amount of money to get a ticket to Paganini's concerts. And then certain late Schubert pieces, like the famous uh, fantasy for violin, the one, oh, that one that begins like that, is full of the most ridiculously virtuoso variations, because he was sort of under the spell, maybe, of Paganini, or trying to write a piece that the publishers might want, or there's some, there's some, some sort of weird hybrid between Schubert's profundity and the virtuosity. Mm. Um, so um, this Brahms Paganini variations definitely occupies a kind of interesting and strategic place in that whole conundrum in history. Yeah, strategic yeah. is a, is, is, a yeah. is a great word because yeah. he, um, he actually referred to these pieces, this opus 35, uh, as, as studien, as studies. Mm -hmm. And he yeah. kind of, he, he came to that very carefully because, um, Chopin had his etudes, which were these, you know, flowery, showy, sort of ostentatious things. And, and Brahms would even refer to these pieces as, as finger exercises. He was kind of doing uh. what he could to, to downplay the, the, the show-off part of it. At least that's the way I read it. And I, I, don't, I don't know if that's... Well, Brahms has a habit through his life of writing these sort of self-effacing... Yeah. Like he referred to the scherzo of this B-flat concerto as a little wisp of a scherzo. Right? <laughs> you know, in late in life, he's, he wrote a few little songs. These are the four serious songs. You know, like yeah. he, he was always referring to his own work in this slightly humorous and understated way. Mm -hmm. Um which is typical of his kind of reserve in general. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, he calls these things finger exercises in the same way that, you know, a very funnily Ligeti says his etudes are, uh, uh, it, because of his own bad technique, he wrote them just to help himself play better, which is <laughs> the most ridiculous understatement of all time because they're the hardest pieces. Yeah. Like, you don't begin with those to make yourself play better. They're just like, torture chambers for the pianist so <laughs> you know um so what Brahms has done is he, he I mean some of them are
obviously, you know, the, the sixths and very much um, aping the style of sort of very annoying piano exercises, <laughs> um, but using them to do things that are kind of extraordinary or, or um, beyond the pale yeah. musically. I mean, that that is a it's a very thrilling a, a variation, and 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 you know, ones. With Well, there, you know, you have all the trick of the hands slipping in into each other's place, and it's also imitating the violin etude kind of at the same time, and then the, you... <laughs> kind of amazing, you know, very simple in a way, exercise pieces that nonetheless become yeah. kind of amazing uh, demonstrations of compositional prowess. Yeah. And, and um, in a way, Brahms saying to all these empty virtuoso people, you know, virtuosity can be done in a very integrity-filled way, and this is how it's done. Yeah. yeah. And, there's, <laughs> and there's, so much, um, there's so much variation and change of mood and atmosphere, the things he does with, with keys and, and, and kind of goes into these graceful little waltzes and places. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, uh, well, there's always a, yes, there's a strategy. Uh, the problem with variations, did I write a thing about that, or did I never publish that thing about that? <laughs> well, we're we're happy to introduce it to the world if this is. Oh the yeah, first I did. Episode. I did write it. That was the NPR when I wrote the famous, uh, the infamous uh, "Why I Hate the Goldberg Variations" right. essay on, yeah. on your blog. Um, uh, and and of course, you know, there is a problem with writing an eighty-minute piece in G major. It's not, and not only G major you know, the same set of harmonies in G major over and over and over again. And then, of course, Bach deploys millions of strategies to to make this monotony bearable, in a way, if you want to put it that way. <laughs> and and he, and very crucially, he deploys some minor key variations at strategically chosen places through the piece to, to sort of delineate, you know, this kind of oasis of, uh, no, how do I... I I think I said in the in the piece, a desert of happiness with oases of sadness, <laughs> which is like it's true. You kind of feel you're so delightful and happy, and then it's such a relief to be. Bach an opportunity, of course, to do all sorts of chromatic things that he can't quite do in the other ones because they wouldn't fit. And then even more ridiculously chromatic. part of a long answer about Brahms, I realize I'm circling around because uh, I actually think, you know, probably the Goldberg Variations special example, and Beethoven wrote some spectacularly great uh, variations, obviously. Often his funniest pieces are his variations and his most um, very imaginative in a certain way that I always admire, almost in a way more than some of the sonatas. But um, I think Brahms is the greatest variation composer. Mm -hmm. I'll just go out and say that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's based on a few... Okay, let's say the second movement of 111 is another exception that we put off to the side as kind of one of the magic moments in the history of music. But, you know, you have the, the, um, the variation movement in the slow movement of the, of the C major trio. And you have that. With a sort of gypsy. And then you have, um, how does that one go? Okay, that's that's pretty unbelievable. But the, even the most unbelievable thing that happens in that variation is, of course, the ma- the major key. So you have the theme in minor, 
and at the end there's always this one refuge in the opposing mode. You know, and that's a classic Beethoven trick. It's a, but near the end comes this special oasis, this special bubble of moment. And I, now I forget exactly. I know what the piano does in it. There's a sort of floating waltz thing that happens at the end. And this very much happens in the Paganini variations because you have all your minor key madness. this kind of business and um, you got plenty of them and then finally at the end of that variation which is like I forget what number he cadences in the major and comes the famous the bubble of major that redeems the whole thing <laughs> like a music box, obviously. Four times in a row, basically the same now. And as if that wasn't amazing enough. next one with this sort of uh, interlocking waves of again going back to the minor right away and this writing of the two hands in the, the left hand in sixteenths and the right hand in triplets but doing the same gesture And the coincidence of the end of the right hand, which always happens on the note while the left hand is doing the next thing. Always, there's a coincidence, interesting. Sometimes not as interesting, but sometimes. Every time dissonance. Perfectly calibrated between the fourth, you know, and yeah. sorry, that was an endless answer yes, to your question no, about. That's fine. <laughs> but it's, it's it's all variations <laughs> on a theme here. Yes. Um, I, I, let's remind people, just since we haven't stated it for the record, the theme that yeah. Is it Paganini's 24th violin? The last piece, piece uh, kind of iconic piece, obviously. Yeah. We all know the other famous variations on that. And, yeah. and so uh, what, what Liszt set this quite famously, but quite, quite literally as a, mm -hmm. as a virtuoso showpiece, kind of showing off on the piano, mm -hmm. the sure. analog to what uh, Paganini was doing on the violin. Yeah. But this is where Brahms you know, takes it into all these extraordinary realms that, that you're talking about. It's, um, well, like so many variations... Um, am I getting too musicological? Can I go a little music theory-ish? Yeah. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I mean, so let's, uh... the essence—the <laughs> essence of um, a variable theme, a theme that is going to produce a lot of interesting material—is often a, a very plain or simple canvas that you can work over in certain ways, and then, and great composers kind of see these possibilities that are hidden in them. Um, so, you know, like, for example, I mentioned earlier, another favorite piece of mine to play, although, unfortunately, I'm always attracted to these pieces that are borderline unplayable. Um, <laughs> it's really an unfortunate character trait of mine that I need to fix sooner or later. But um, the heroic variations begin... This is the tonic. That's the dominant. That's the dominant. That's a tonic. 
still we're on the tonic and we go to the dominant and we're stuck on the dominant All right then dominant still what the hell is going to happen uh, and dominant to the tonic so the sim the idea of the theme is incredibly simple alternation of dominant so. you can do with that are limitless, right? And or... In other words, composers are attracted to the, you know, even the Goldberg variations, for God's sake, um, that... based on the simplest possible kind of um, bass line that, that uh, Handel used for a fairly simple but endless set of variations. <laughs> One to five, dominant to do tonic to dominant, right? And then the Goldberg variations, he decided that was a little too boring for the whole piece, so he does all these different... variations of that. So he does three variations on the initial and he does three more and then he creates this kind of circle of the whole thing. So uh, the Paganini theme has the wonderful quality of tonic, dominant, dominant, tonic. There's nothing to it. And then moving by in the opposite direction to the subdominant. Down. And then. Then resolving everything. And so the, the key is that, that the opening part allows you to do anything, because it's just dominant, tonic and dominant, right? This is any. any number of possibilities, you know, it's endless. And yeah. as, you, as you say, such, such a, a detailed understanding of, of, of form and tradition, yet, you know, he can overlay all these um, kind of emerging technical devices. I, I wanted to read just a couple of um, impressions of this piece from the day. And Carl Tausig, who was this Liszt protege who, uh, who premiered the piece, he wrote this letter to Brahms in which he's kind of delighted with how challenging the music is. And Tausig says to Brahms of the Paganini var variations, I had a devil of a time with them, and then I am glad that they caused such a commotion. Everybody considers them unplayable, yet they secretly nibble at them and are furious that the fruits hang so high. Mm -hmm. and, and, I and Clara Schumann just saw how phenomenally difficult they were, and she said that they were the, the witches' variations. And um, you would be the person to say, but um, are, are they the most difficult thing that Brahms wrote? Yes. Yeah. And that's uh, many, many, <laughs> many concur with. Uh, it was a very long answer before. It's a very short answer. No, <laughs> but it's, it, that's, that's very interesting to, to know. It's one of the most difficult things in all the piano repertoire. Yeah. yeah. Well, the one thing that y you've touched on so much, uh, maybe you could talk a little bit um, about Rhythm, since that's such a fascinating thing with Brahms, and one of the things that he was doing here, I know you've alluded to it a little bit, but mm -hmm. this idea of you know one hand doing triplets and the other doing kind of duples, and then there's sort of permutations of that as as he goes goes sure. along. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's, I mean, now obviously Brahms is famous. It's like his brand marketing is about the hemiola, right? Yeah, and right. he loves. Um, it's, it's interesting how you know every composer has their sort of trademark tricks that they go to in certain ways. I mean, even Beethoven has, you know, the surprising sforzando or the subito piano or certain kinds of things that he loves to use to, to um, break up the expected. Uh, uh, Brahms sometimes uses triplets just to beautify things, like... In other words, the two against the three causes this...
uh, and then there's places that are much different where it's sort of more like a grind of two against three or a very large sense of pull uh, of the two rhythms against each other. I guess... Um, the left hand devilishly crossing over, the left right hand playing in duples and... Right, and the left hand doing the, the triples. Um, Trying to think where the other big profound, uh, well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Uh, he, you'd think that you'd get tired of two against three after a certain point in your life, but he doesn't. And he manages to kind of um, constantly use that obsession to his, mm -hmm. to his credit, mm -hmm. you know, as a kind of uh, way to explore the possibilities of tonality. I, I wonder what has occurred to you about. Um, what sort of reputation Brahms had as a pianist? It seems like I hear different things. That sometimes nerves got the the. the well, we have the, no the, way of knowing. He knew he was yeah. un unrecorded, right? Right, but there are, you know, which is not surprising. Mm -hmm. Reports of a composer not playing his own works that well, um, but they're spending a lot of time composing. They're not necessarily yeah. there in the practice room, you know, trying to nail octaves all the time, right? <laughs> uh, and and the composer is allowed to. Screw, screw yeah. up their own pieces, and I mean, it's, uh, it's interesting. Sometimes it, you feel like a composer uh, doesn't necessarily uh, give you that much insight how to play their piano. Sometimes it, you feel that they really do. Uh, like Prokofiev, for example, it's fascinating to listen to him playing his own pieces. It's so different from the sort of metronomic toccata motor rhythm that we're used to. His playing is so colorful, it's so heavily pedaled, so full of rubato and wit and kind of not not exactly Debussyan, but sort of a slightly edgier, more metallic hmm. Debussyan sound. I, I was interested that um, when Brahms was young, I was reading a little bit about how he came to Marx and this, this teacher in Hamburg. And uh, Marxen kind of understood that, that Brahms was this heady child that was, that was very well read and, and very interested in composing and, and, and you know, helped him ground his education looking at Bach and, and Handel. And, and Brahms' uh, father was a sort of um, not a very successful musician. He was ready to send Brahms off to, to the United States to tour as this young child prodigy. And Markson would sort of said, no, let's, let's leave him here and, and teach him Bach and, and let him grow up as a normal kid. And, and it seems like that strategy kind of paid off. <laughs> I think uh, there's, we have no regrets about Brahms' biography, as it turns <laughs> out. It all turned out pretty well. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, yeah, actually, I have a slight... Um, I, have a, I love reading composers' letters, but I don't like reading biographies mm. that much for whatever reason. Uh, I feel like it's always kind of um, diluted the experience of, yeah. of the life and, and sort of in the process of making the narrative, it removes me a little bit from, from something... Whereas the letters, I, have, I mean, there are some great... I actually don't know the Brahms letters that well, but there's some Beethoven letters for me that are totally iconic and mm -hmm. represent, representative of what a nutcase he was uh, in a crucial way. Well, I, and, and speaking of that, I, I love these notes that you do for the, the Ligeti Beethoven recording that you've just released on Nunsuch. And, Thank you uh, for the plug. That's good. <laughs> That's right. It's available. It is. And it's, it's wonderful. And, and, and the, the notes are really... Extraordinary. I, I love the way you, you, and maybe you could help us uh, understand this, but you, you sort of talk about this section which, which strikes you as, as boogie-woogie <laughs> mm -hmm. in the, in the uh, Opus 111, and, and Beethoven somehow you know, anticipating that, that sound. I guess this happens to you a lot where you're you know, intensely practicing and you, you, you know, you're focusing on a piece and all of a sudden um, you know, your own contemporary context kind of comes into play, but... How did Boogie Woogie sort of uh, sneak up on yeah, you? It's, as it's actually funny because I think the first, when my blog started to be more widely read was because um, I was here in Seattle practicing in Gloria Peck's house in Montlake, where I still stay. And, uh, and it was, I was cramming, which you should not do, by the way. I was cramming the Hammerklavier Sonata for a recital that I had. I had gotten, I had let it. You know, I was sort of practicing the opening pages with a lot of pleasure for a long time. And then I suddenly realized that the whole piece had to be learned at a certain <laughs> very crucial moment. And 
I remember being up, you know, like three in the morning in Gloria's because she has a sort of a separate wing where you can pray. She can sleep, doesn't hear anything, you know, and I was just there. And may have, yeah, it was like three in the morning because I remember I went to Dick's for a cheeseburger then before I went to bed. And, and I was practicing and I suddenly, this, you know, the theme of the Hammurabi. Um, and it gets turned upside down. Whatever it is. And somehow, at some point in the morning, I, was, I heard, Come and knock on my door. We were waiting for you. The theme from Three's Company. And, and for some reason, I was able to extend that into an enormous blog post about Beethoven, largely, but using that metaphor and Mr. Roper images. And, 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 and that was one that Alex, you know, it was like, you know, sort of mashup of, of pop culture and Beethoven. Um, I, I'm not the person who noticed that the Beethoven sounds like boogie woogie. Certainly, everyone knows that. I mean, it's bizarre when it happens. Um, and I think what's in what's in the notes for me about that is, um, it's not that. Im I mean, for me, it's more an ecstatic rhythmic thing. Mm -hmm. Calling it boogie woogie just it's kind of the elephant in the room. If we ignore it, you know, it sounds like boogie woogie. It's kind of amazing that that Beethoven would have thought of it uh, before all that time. I don't think he was thinking of Woogie Woogie, <laughs> obviously. Um, but what he was doing, as he did throughout his life, is sort of pursue the consequences of his basic ideas to the absolute farthest possible place, you know, and, and pay attention to the innate qualities of the materials. And in this case, what the innate, the idea that he's obsessing about is a very simple cell that's a rhythmic cell, long, short, long. Then again, And then it doesn't come again for a little bit. But then it comes in the bass. Right? And then the next variation he elides long, short, long, short, long, and he does it also in canon with the left hand. The left hand's. Right. Simple enough, right? Right, and then this next variation doubles that. That's the slightly audacious step because it's a piece in a triple meter. Long, short, 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 Right? And then long, short, long, short. Um, guess it's boogie woogie, but you know it's been arrived at in the most profound, imaginable Absolutely. way. So um, I guess that was my point, uh, sort of. <laughs> yeah. I want you. You were saying uh, about Beethoven taking things to sort of their their extreme, and mm -hmm. um, and that's a that's a segue into. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the, your Ligeti. Uh, George Ligeti, the Hungarian composer, and you introduced some of this last summer at the. Um, recital here, and mm -hmm. I think that's when you were in the the throes of, of, of learning these for the re, the recording. And, and certainly, the, this has throws. been. A, I get a very intense process to mm -hmm. uh, get this music in your mind and, and fingers and fabric of your being. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and to kind of go back to our original point of departure about etudes. I mean, this is uh, this is ligeti in some ways having. Having fun, if you can call it that, with with etudes and and that whole practice that uh, music students have to do of just these exercises that can be kind of mind numbing. You have a great quote in your notes about it. Just it, it it takes it takes the idea of etudes to to their extreme. 
Yes, puts etudes on on steroids or something like yes, that. Exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and my idea is partly that you know what Beethoven has done in the last movement there, with the rhythm is is bizarre, syncopated, dislocated in the extreme, um, and 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 it's an amazing journey in which he manages to reconcile those dislocations and and I guess I felt. I think the 19th century loved Beethoven but couldn't deal with some of these bizarrenesses of late Beethoven. They were more interested in the sweep of, of middle Beethoven. And it took until the 20th century for, for some of these things to be followed up on. Mm-hmm. And I think it is interesting to see how Ligeti's obsession with dislocation and chaos and the introduction of small element of chaos extrapolated into the most um, amazing extremes. And I think I maybe explained, if you were there for the recital last year, I was trying to explain the first etude, which is called, uh, intelligently enough, Disorder, which is the flagship, and, and how it begins with a very simple, kind of simple childlike... Right? Um, unfortunately, then, he puts the left hand in... in well, the right hand's only playing on the seven white notes, and the left hand's only playing on the five black notes. So um, that has consequences for how the left hand is able to follow the right hand, because the black notes are configured differently, right, from the, from the right hand. So. The left hand has a similar melody, uh, and they start together. And then the left hand gets one tiny, tiny pulse behind. Then it gets two pulses behind. Three pulses. Four pulses. And maybe it's a good time to play the record so that I don't have to kill myself okay. playing it. Uh, let me talk about, I think, the third one that's called Blocked Keys. Sure. And the, blocked Keys is so interesting because it, it uh, I, I remember when I was studying cello, one of my teachers had this thing, what he called, what he called wrong note technique. It's like yeah. if you're practicing a big shift, go up half step above, half step below. Mm-hmm. And you say kind of in this, in this uh, etude that, that Ligeti takes that idea, again, as he does with so many things, to kind of to an extreme Yes. One aspect. That's a really devilish and horrible etude. It's actually, in some ways, the most awkward and sort of counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. And I think I say something about how it, it's basically like making you play badly, deliberately, in a certain <laughs> way. Um, because he has, you know, you probably had these when you were kids, These, if you played the piano. Um, you have an exercise where you hold down your thumb and pinky silently on some notes. And then you have to play patterns with the middle fingers while those notes, and then you hold down your third finger and you try to, and it's all about independence of fingers, you know, and it's very terrible. And 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 in this case, he has you hold down very awkwardly because you have to hold down three white notes, C, D, and E, with two fingers. So you, you have to sort of lodge your third finger in the crack between two notes to hold down both of them. And then you, um, then you play a chromatic scale over it, except that, of course, you know, many of the notes won't sound. He does, he does, and he also makes your left hand do all sorts of insanely horrible notes. And, and it comes out this incredible stuttering kind of yeah. rhythm that you could never write because the silent notes allow you to do certain rhythms that would be so ridiculous to try to count. It, yeah. This music comes from the 19... 19- 80s and 90s, so it's 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 very late in his career, and it, much like the Brahms and like the late Beethoven, it's it's often such a summation of things that he was thinking about earlier in his life. Uh-huh. And I, I'm interested in this one is that he did a fair amount of um, looking into electronic music, and he was interested in Stockhausen and all that, and 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 these kind of um, scale patterns that are interrupted, that are just sort of you know blanked out, um, was it was a real fascination of him, and 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 the the randomness of that. Mm-hmm. of that sound. Yeah, no, it's a very unique, I mean, it's, it's a, pervert, a perversion of a piano exercise yeah. in the most wonderful way. And it's supposed to be very funny, and his image for it was um, circus clowns who pretend to be able to perform some feat they can actually do wonderfully. <laughs> yeah, well, it's true, it's, the level of difficulty involved in doing these miscalculations is amazing. 
I'll just play a little bit of this yeah. since you've gone to the trouble of recording yes. it. And so- <laughs> You don't know the number of hours I spent on those 30 seconds of music or whatever. Yeah. Talk about that, that process of, um, of learning something like this because I, you I, brew a pot of coffee and you get started and then four hours later you brew another one and you keep going. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously that kind of music, um, depends on the etude. Each one has its own difficulties, but Ligeti says a very nice understatement somewhere. Where is that? It's so great. And one of the most difficult ones, he says, Concerning rehearsal of this piece, it is advisable to practice the left and right hand separately more than is usual. <laughs> well, yeah, jerk. Um, if you hadn't written that, we wouldn't have to, you know? <laughs> I love this line from the, that you've written in the liner notes. You say, and this is kind of a, a more concise way of what we've gotten to already, but you say, Ligeti celebrates the genre's perversity, repurposes it into wild, unheard of art, drawing inspiration from the etude's most uncompromising attributes, obsession, monotony, ad infinitum, repetition, mathematical dryness. He fearlessly redeems them. I think that's true. It sounds like a lot of BS, but I think that's actually kind of true uh, in the sense that, you know, he takes these premises and he does something, um, you know, since we talked about um, what I mean by mathematical dryness and and since we talked about Brahms's hemiola um, might connect to this... uh, Etude number eight, because this is a kind of extended hemiola beyond, beyond what you would normally imagine. He writes um, in the left hand a pattern, uh, a simple rhythmic pattern in eight quarter notes. Okay, fine. And he writes in the right hand a pattern of nine eighth notes, which is eight quarter notes plus one extra, right? And it goes... Is that... I think I have the numbers wrong. But anyway, it's one small unit off, one quarter note maybe. Maybe it's nine quarter notes rather than eight. Anyway, so the point being that nine times eight is 72, so we only reunite every 72 beats. So... Come together. Yeah, then it's very cleverly set up so the ending has this sense, you know, oh yes, finally. After so, yeah. And it sounds what what's so great about it is that he generates so many wonderful jazzy syncopations and different, each one a slightly different version of but it's all the same very much, you know. Yeah. So it's so so cleverly done and it's so it's so witty in a certain very dry, abstruse way. <laughs> I found myself making all these connections to, to Brahms actually when I was you know, thinking about the, the Paganini variations. Uh, this next this next section, um, very different character and atmosphere, but in one, I can't remember if it's book one or book two of Brahms' Paganini. He he does a section where it's an homage to Paganini. He says, play it like pizzicato. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's in yeah. book two, yeah. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and in this in this um, one called Open Fifths of, mm-hmm. of Ligeti, mm-hmm. um, he's kind of playing with the idea of, uh, the fifth is the interval of, the, of a string, of a cello or violin. And, yeah. and he's kind of playing with the idea of, of string players warming up. Yes. Um, how, do, how does he take it even beyond on that? Or... Yeah. Well, we all know how, what, it, hmm. what it sounds like when the strings tune up in the orchestra. So if you begin with that. Mm. 
tuning to the next dimension on the planet Zorg or something, right? And all these interlacing lines, right? And then, then gradually, uh, I wish my memory was good enough to just skip to the, but um, gradually there's an introduction of triplets. Hemiola's against that. And then a different kind of syncopation, then back to the triplet hemiolas. And then it gets even more insane because he introduces this different idea. Typical with Ligeti, and everything heads off to the end. <laughs> and the tuning has become oh. can become out of its mind. Yeah. yeah. The, the other Brahms reference that occurred to me is you you were writing about this. Um, it's, it's the fanfares movement, uh -huh. and it's it's the idea of horn calls, and yes. you know there's Brahms that the great. Moment from the first symphony where the where he'd heard that Alphorn and it reminded him of Clara Schumann and 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 the Brahm, the horn trio all, all this great horn work and Ligeti's interested in that idea too of of, mm -hmm. of horn calls and well he wrote a very famous horn trio um, which is a homage to Brahms mm -hmm. people were kind of shocked because he was supposed to be this avant-garde figure and here he was writing this sort of homage to Brahms, who was like even not avant-garde in the 19th century, right? He was on the, on the backside of things. But obviously, uh, there are things in Brahms that are revolutionary in their own fashion, you know? And, uh, and that kind of compositional excellence is always, in a way, revolutionary in some fashion or other. Yeah. Um, and, and he got obsessed, he got obsessed a little bit with the sound of the natural horn, uh, sort of slightly out-of-tune sounding. And, well, this all kind of it's all Beethoven's fault, like everything, <laughs> because the beginning of Opus 81A Sonata, the famous farewell beginning, which horns should, you know, by the, their nature, they can only play certain notes, or they did at that time before there were valves and blah, 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 so that it was easier for them to play just those notes, which isn't a very exciting life, but that's what they played a lot of the time, and so, and to the deceptive cadence under the last note is sort of a uh, how it, well, Beethoven's taking the horn call which announces the arrival of the or the departure of the coach and turning it into something full of pathos and Ligeti loved the, this is a very famous idea obviously Mahler kind of ran with it at a little bit too much length if you ask me in the last movement of the Ninth <laughs> Symphony um, <laughs> but anyway uh, it's a gesture that has been very important uh, in music history and Ligeti has this sort of perverse version of it yeah. and and in the horn trio you have all these wonderful horn calls that start normally and then kind of go or, or Millions of, of kind of brilliant rewritings. In this case, begins very much like a, and then it's it's like actually two horn calls in one. Half the horn call is in one key, and the other one is a. So it's like slightly grotesque rethought horn calls. And horn calls. And then those horn calls kind of disintegrate into, um, as maybe this is the part of the Brahms connection, is this sort of hemiolas against the beat. But they also sound like Thelonious Monk or something. Left hand keeps going one two three one two one two three one two three one two one two three one two three one two one two three one two three one two three one two and the right hand does anything but not that. So there's something exasperating about that. 
There's a very funny ligety marking. This is a little insider thing. You're going along insanely fast, by the way, right? He writes espressivo. Then he writes molto espressivo. <laughs> I don't know what he meant by that. But it's, I, lo I actually think of it as a partly the composer's joke on the pianist. You're like, you're doing molto espressivo. <laughs> what is, what the, is the section in your notes where you talk about, okay, he, he asks for it to be legato, and then he asks for, oh, yes. and, it, and it culminates in, you know, where you're just saying, okay, this is beyond... Well, that's the, uh, the worst cool. one. The worst <laughs> one is called Vertige, which is, again, like, a, like the Brahms um, sixth stages or, or thirds or whatever Brahms is aping in the way of normal piano exercises. Uh, Ligeti's aping um, chromatic scales that you practice endlessly, except that they always overlap at different time signatures. And so it actually turns into kind of an etude in different, um, you have to separately practice, you know, when you're growing up as kids, maybe you did this, fourths, thirds, and fourths, or, yeah, or octaves. Each interval kind of separately, or six. In this case, every interval is in there because the different chromatic scales enter at different times, and he writes triple piano, the softest, really quite soft, with una corda, he writes sempre molto legato, very even. That's the, the mean one. And then finally, without any pedal, he says. Not nice. Molto legato. <laughs> you know, it's ridiculous. Eventually, a melody does come in. By the way, okay. yeah. no, it's, it's, there's there's beautiful moments. We w I want to get on to just a couple minutes to talk about the Bartok, but mm -hmm. but to, to sort of bring the Brahms point home, you, you talk about your favorite one of these etudes called "In Suspense," and, uh -huh. and, and 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 you describe it as sort of a hesitation waltz, and and um, we're talking about you know Brahms creating in, independent facility of hands. Do I understand that he writes Ligeti writes? One hand in in a, in a, like a six four time, and the other in a four four time with a different metronomic marking. Is, am I? No, your, in this or, case he writes okay. he writes them as dotted, but it's the effect is the same. The the left hand's in four four, and the right hand's in six four, which is very Brahmsian, hemiola kind of mm -hmm. thing. Two against three. Mm -hmm. Three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, one, two, three, four, five, six, one. Incredibly beautiful, I think. And the most, the most probably beautiful, there's a sort of empty part in the middle. astounding thing he does it with a kind of an eighth note flowing and the understanding of the piano and the, the color possibilities of the piano and that kind of music is Amazing, you know, it's like you kind of sometimes think that 20th century composers had forgotten about how beautiful the piano can be, yeah. and he didn't. <laughs> just, a, just a concluding thought from you on the, the Bartok uh, microcosmos. It's mm -hmm. uh, two piano arrangement that, that Bartok made in about 1940, so he could yeah. travel with his wife, Dita Pastori, who was a wonderful pianist. Mm -hmm. um, after you immerse yourself in the world of, of you know, these complex rhythms and, 
etudes and technical challenges. Um, what's it like to come back to, to, to bar talk after, after Ligeti? Or? Well, I, was, um, I had a very amazing Hungarian teacher in Bloomington, Indiana, Shebuk, George Shebuk, and, um, and his thoughts about Bartok were, were kind of super illuminating. Um, so I, Bartok feels like a slightly home language to me in one way or another, and, and he used to sing the, even things that pianists would normally play very um, aggressively or uh, annoyingly in my opinion, um, like for the beginning of the piano sonata, let's say. Um, typically, you're like, sort of like, like sort of hammering kind of sense. And he, you'd come in and play the beginning of the Bartok sonata, and he'd, be, he'd sit there and he'd just like sing, quiet, sort of voicelessly. And he was all about these amazing backbeats in Bartok, this sort of sense of the... There's two kind of principles, rhythmic principles in Bartok. One is that every phrase tends to... The melodic phrases tend to begin with accents because Hungarian always tends to have the accent on the first syllable. And then very often the accompaniment has this sort of profound backbeat um, that informs these front-beated melodies. And so in this case... You endless melodies that are just like a few notes at a time. And then they would discover another note. Come back. I think that this micro, these microcosmos pieces sound a lot in that, in that general vein. They're especially... Um, there's a couple that are just beautiful settings of folk tunes. There's a couple that are incredibly funny and wonderful um, kind of compositional tricks, like mirrors, uh, chromatic mirrors back and forth, and they're incredibly beautifully um, arranged, obviously, for yeah, the, he, to be honest. Of course, there were 153 microcosmos that he, that he wrote. Yeah, yeah. And uh, even in this rearrangement, there, it's, it's a group of seven. Yeah. And this one that you're referring to just now is the, is the middle one. So I'm almost thinking he's, he's doing that a kind of mathematical, formal thing, even in... Even well, he was, a, he was loved mirror canons. Yeah. He was obsessed with um, inversions, uh, you know, that if... <laughs> and then he does all these wonderful harmonic tricks with them. Uh, and then... But the last one is just a plain old um, rip-roaring um, folk dance. <laughs> that wonderful sense you know in Bartok when um, somewhere in the middle of the dance it sort of heavies itself up a little bit slows down and this and then of course at the end releasing into a kind of frenzy of yeah. of dancing yeah. well, amazing he was an amazing harmonic you know people I don't know why I, I always hear from presenters and 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 audience might mean that they, that Bartok is a composer. It's like box office death or whatever. And I can never understand that. He's the most humane and genial and lovely. I mean, such a, and he was such an amazing person on yeah. top of all that. I mean, and the music is such a warmth. And, and even though it's dissonant, as you can, like, it's folk dissonance. It's like dissonance that has to do with the sort of pungent, you know, uh, primitive instruments, you know. I don't know. It's it's always mystified me in one way or it, another. It's a it's a lovely story about him even creating microcosmos in the first place, where mm -hmm. his son was son Peter was nine years old and yeah. he was teaching him and and uh, he would just um, he really got into teaching his kid and mm -hmm. so he would he would have him singing and doing all these different kind of musical exercises. And then he would he said wait and he'd go and scribble something and play this and you know learn it for three days down the yeah, road. Yeah, they're like simple, humble exercises that are taken to the highest possible yeah. level. Yeah. 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 Well, Jeremy, we're going to have to leave it there and okay. let you get to your practicing, and, and thank you so much. Yeah. So this does bring us to the end of this latest in our series of Classical Conversations produced by the Seattle Chamber Music Society. Our guest has been pianist Jeremy Dank, who plays pieces by Brahms, Bartok, Debussy, Mio, and Frank Bridge over the next few evenings here at the Seattle Chamber Music Society. We'll visit with one more society artist in this podcast series. That's Andrew Armstrong. And uh, that will be right here in uh, Soundbridge in Benaroya Hall at noon on July 22nd, if you can join us here for that. Otherwise, 
dial up your phones and computers and iPods and pads, and uh, we'll be out there on a podcast. Uh, Jeremy Jolly produces these programs. Bill Levy is our recording engineer and technical producer. I'm Dave Beck from 94.9 KUOW Public Radio in Seattle, and thanks so much for joining us, and uh, talk to you again soon. Jeremy, thank you so much. (laughs) 